Mardell and I are both subbing in for speakers who couldn't be here today. And originally I had thought to talk about two different women um, looking at how they help their tribes through um, economic hardship. But I decided I'm going to talk about one person because I think we're going a little more in depth and just focusing on one person makes it a little bit a little bit easier. So um, I'm going to talk about Julia Schultz, who's a member of the Gromont or Onion White Clay Tribe from Fort Belknap. And um, originally my talk was going to be talking about women in the during the Great Depression um, and how women on the reservations were helping their tribal communities. But when we think about the Great Depression with regards to American Indians, it's not really the 1930s like it is for the rest of America. The Great Depression on the reservations really starts um, a lot earlier with the demise of the bison in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, those trees, which are often the second or third or fourth trees at that point, or amendments to trees that have shrunk the reservations into much smaller territories than tribes originally had that have cut off that um, intertribal trade network that was so essential for their economies um, and through the treaties a forced dependence on the United States government for rations. Rations were foods that were given in kind um, as a payment for part of the lands that the United States took away from these tribes. So all of those factors um, set up the reservation system to be a system in which Native people didn't have a lot of uh, resources that they, they formerly had. And it also meant that they didn't have a lot of opportunities um, without a lot of heavy federal paternalism. They didn't have a lot of opportunities to develop their own economies in ways that would really benefit their people. So if you think about the Great Depression in Indian country, it really is going to start in the late 1800s and it's going to last um, well into the 20th century. So I want to talk about Julia Schultz because she was born in 1872 in Augusta. Um, and she's the daughter of a French man, Monsieur Everault, and pipe woman who um, is also American culinary standing, um, who was a girl wanderer, an Indian woman uh, from a very prominent uh, tribal family. And Julia Schultz, this is a, this is a picture of her in the second there, um, that sweet smiling lady with the lovely little apron. Her life spans 101 years, 1872 until 1973. If we just stop and think about that, that's a colossal amount of change that happens over 101 years. They're going from the last of the bison days, 1872, uh, the Gromont shared the northern tier of Montana with the Blackfeet that had been designated in 1855 as belonging to them and for their use and occupation. Um, and over the course of her lifetime, the whole world is going to pretty much change around her. So our, the, the titles of our talks combine or continuity and change. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some of those changes, um, but also how the continuity of tribal culture and the continuity of women's roles as uh, protectors and caregivers of the household economy um, and of women's endeavors really um, pulled her through this hard time. So in a nutshell, um, Julia Schultz became a community leader who found ways to help others, particularly women and children in her community, by seeing opportunities 
where it appeared there were no opportunities, and then acting on those opportunities in a way um, that, that helped her improve the well-being of other people's lives. She grew up in Augusta on her parents' ranch. They were wheat and oat farmers. They also raised cattle, and she remembers as a child that they were, um, they were poor enough that they harvested the oats and the wheat by hand. And they was literally by hand. And that they would cut it or stack it, and then they would beat it with willow sticks to get the grains to fall, to fall off. So very labor intensive. And yet this is the time when Native people are being said, told to, to be farmers, to step into that role as farmers. And so they're they're making a sincere effort to, to follow through on that. Um, so she spends her first 15 years uh, in Augusta. During that time, she is sent to the, the St. Peter's Mission boarding school. And the St. Peter's Mission served primarily Métis, mixed heritage children and Blackfeet children. And during the years when she's there, uh, these are two different pictures of the school, during the years that she's there, there are a couple of really notable people. There are the Ursuline nuns, obviously, you see them in that lower photograph. And you see next to one of them, a little tiny girl. We don't know who she is. But we also can see a gal um, in a buggy right there. Um, and that happens to be Mary Fields. Mary Fields was an African-American woman. She ran the post um, out of Fort Benton. Um, she was also employed at the St. Peter's Mission as sort of their protector and gardener. Uh, she kind of is their, their all-purpose take care of the place and keep it running kind of gal. She was also a mentor for a lot of the young children who were there who found her very comforting. Um, and there are some different stories of children who were at St. Peter's Mission that felt like she was a good role model. I don't have any evidence of it, but I often wondered um, when you see the things that Julia Schultz accomplishes later in her life, if Mary Fields wasn't a, a pretty big influence on her in the sense that Mary Fields knew everything there was to know about gardening and uh, taught that information to children often. She had to help her in the vegetable gardens. Um, it's a pretty handy skill, especially in times of need. The other person who was at St. Peter's Mission during the time that Mary, uh, Julia Schultz was there, I guess she was Julia Errol at the time, uh, was Louis Riel. And Louis Riel is the, the fellow who the, the Riel Rebellion or the Northwest Rebellion is named for, an altercation between uh, the Métis and their indigenous allies who were trying to seek political recognition um, in Canada. And they had, he left uh, St. Peter's Mission in 1885, one up there in an armed confrontation against the Canadian government and was hanged afterwards. Um, but he was a French teacher, and he also taught poetry at uh, St. Peter's Mission. So both of these people would have been there when she attended the school. Here's a picture of Mary Fields, who was uh, notable for, for being just absolutely gutsy and brave. Um, and she did run that post out of, out of Fort Benton, um, and was considered every bit as dangerous as you run into her, or you're trying to mess with her as, as a man. She did carry a very large rifle with her. Um, after uh, Julia was 15, her family moved up to Fort Belknap. And here's a picture of their uh, the mission and the agency. Um, and they moved up there. Her parents uh, had a ranch that they kind of restarted their whole ranching operation. It's interesting to note, it's a little tiny side note, 
one point, her, parent, her mother and her, she and her sisters were moving some of their cattle, trying to move them from the Augusta area up to Fort Belknap, and they were intercepted by some state official, we don't know who it was, who confiscated 20 of their cattle because they said, you're not on the reservation, so we're going to fine you 20 cattle, which was completely baloney, but... They lost 20 cattle in the effort. Her parents go up to uh, Fort Belknap, and Julia helps them work on the ranch. She also uh, has a couple of her sisters who are at the St. Paul's Mission School. And Julia has, has been through a boarding school, um, and she knows that those aren't always safe places for Native kids. St. Paul's, unfortunately, did have a reputation for having a lot of um, physical and emotional abuse. She also knew that that could be a place where her sisters could be very, very lonely. So she um, steps in mostly as a volunteer at the school to help the students learn. But her real role there, and this role that becomes her lifetime goal, is as a protector for her, for her sisters, looking out for them, making sure that they get through this experience safely, that they are taken care of, that they are loved and nurtured, and that they're not suffering from uh, loneliness or neglect or, or hunger or any of the hardships that other students faced. So that's when she really steps into that, um, into that caregiver role. And I want you guys to look at that picture for a second. What do you notice about those girls? Oh, well, they're, they're the nuns who are wearing, they've got their, their hoods on. What are the girls wearing? The girls are most, most of the girls, the young ones are sitting in front. They're wearing dresses, and these are the dresses that they were taught to make at the boarding school. The boarding school, of course, had a mission, as the entire boarding school program did, whether they were federal schools or um, church-run schools, to assimilate American Indians by basically stripping them of their Indian identity and having them recreate themselves in the image of white men. So what you won't see in the boarding school pictures that were taken to kind of show off that year's class you won't see them um, in their moccasins, in their buskin dresses. You won't see them with things that represent their tribes. You'll see them very much made to look all alike, sort of cookie cutter image, and dressed like non-native people at the time. That's one of the big goals of the boarding schools. Um, this is the assimilation era, the 1880s, 1890s, uh, well into the 1900s. This picture is actually at the Crow Reservation, but I wanted to show it to you because these were seen as the agents of change. And in this picture, you have the missionaries, you have the school teachers, the blacksmiths, the boss farmers, um, all the people who, the, the priests, all the people who were there to teach Native people how to very quickly change their way of life, change their mode of work, change their method of worship, change their language, and assimilate into American culture. So it wasn't unique at the Crow Reservation, which is why I pulled this up. These guys were on all the reservations, and sometimes were built right into the trees. Federal government said, well, we'll give you a blacksmith, we'll give you a doctor, maybe we'll give you a school teacher, we'll send you some missionaries. All of these different agents of change that are essentially working on behalf of the government to speed up that assimilation process. 
Um, as part of the reservation system, uh, tribes were often promised in treaties that their rations would be um, dispersed um, and annuities would be dispersed among tribal members and at certain times of year, livestock that would have been provided to the tribes as part of that payment in kind would be slaughtered. This is a picture on the Blackfeet Reservation. I couldn't find one at Fort Belknap, um, 1887, on the Blackfeet Reservation. And this is the slaughterhouse that people have been waiting, waiting, waiting um, at the Badger Agency to, to um, get their distribution of the meat that was slaughtered there. The point I'm trying to make is that these were very hungry times among the tribes. There was a lot of malnutrition. And the rations that were being provided to them, other than a lot of it was, it was already processed. It was very heavily salted. It was being shipped from back east. It often arrived and was already rancid by the time it got here. Um, in any case, it was loaded with salt. Not good for you. There were also coffee, sugar, flour, foods that were new, and foods that have uh, set in motion this, this legacy of malnutrition that is having health impacts on tribal people today. So this is the world that she, she's living in. This is, is a picture at uh, Fort Belknap of um, an annuities distribution or a commodities distribution um, in, I think it was 1909. You can see the two women in the foreground are sharing this heavy burden of something they're, they're carrying. But there's a long line leading up to that little building. Everybody's kind of getting, getting her share to bring back to the family. So at this time, one of the roles of those agents of change is to encourage Native people to become agriculturalists, which is great in some places where they already had an agricultural lifestyle, but that wasn't true by and large uh, for the Indian uh, people of that Fort Bill Map. Uh, so the Blackfeet. Uh, the Assiniboines, the white clay, are all being told, make this big change from being a hunting dependent economy to being agriculturalists growing primarily uh, wheat and goats, um, but also in time, so many of them became ranchers. She got married in 1890 um, to Al Schultz, and he, she and he settled on some land that was allotted to her um, near Dawson. And they started a ranch. Ranching in northern Montana is often more profitable than actually farming, um, depending on your climate. So she's working very hard um, to make the ranch successful. She's helping to look out for her sisters. Um, she also has this growing awareness of the fact that infectious diseases are claiming the lives of a lot of Native American people during this time. Diseases like tuberculosis and trachoma, which are spread largely from the boarding schools to the reservations where families um, are living in crowded housing and spreading it amongst themselves. Influenza is big at this time. Smallpox in the early 20th century is still going around Montana um, and is being spread largely by railroad travel. So as the railroads are passing through, it's kind of if people are getting on and off, smallpox is spreading with them. Other diseases like um, influenza, measles, and all the, all the regular ones are also taking a big toll. But the difference on the reservations is that those, the, uh, um, the rates of disease are so much higher. 
because there isn't adequate medical care. So during the 20s, 30s, and 40s, Julia Schultz is going to take a real leadership role in um, addressing issues of hunger and health care. One of the things that happens um, during the uh, mid-1930s is the uh, passage of, in 1934, the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, which establishes an Arts and Crafts Board to uh, promote American Indian arts as authentic Indian arts, kind of to um, give some economic incentive for Native people to renew their interest in, in producing arts, but also to kind of guard against these fraudulent people who are creating and selling us authentic Indian crafts. Um, mostly it was pottery out of the Southwest and making money on it, pretending to be Indians. So 1934 is kind of, in, in, in both ways good and bad, a watershed year in terms of federal Indian policy, because during 1934 that um, the Arts and Crafts Act passes, John Collier is the, is the, is the uh, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, and he really thinks that Indian cultures and uh, Indian crafts and even Indian uh, spirituality and their ceremonial systems are valid and worth preserving and worth retaining, which is a complete 180 from the assimilation policy. So it's then that ceremonies like the Sunnets and an outlaw or the ghost dance and an outlaw um, are quote unquote allowed to come back into existence from a federal perspective. Um, but there is a push for people to retain cultural aspects of their lives, um, including language during that time. So this is the Northern Plains, um, a, a section of the Northern Plains um, Indian Crafts uh, Guild that was formed in Montana. This was taken up in Browning, I think it was 1936, and these represent people from different different tribes. Julia becomes uh, the leader in uh, the WPA program, Works Progress Administration program, that uh, from 1935 to 1942 encourages Native groups to form these craft guilds. And her goal is to get older women and sometimes older men who know how to do things like high tanning and beading and making part flushes and making clothing, all these different skills um, to teach the younger generations so that those younger generations can uh, produce our items for sale. This is the Great Depression, America's Great Depression. And so this is a really valuable source of cash for those women. These are several of the different women from different Mon the Montana tribes. And I just want to point out this one little gal back here with the feathers. Most of the people in this are not named. I think three or four of them are named in the records that I have found. But I did find one source that said they think that was Julia Schultz back there with the little feathers. Um, and it certainly looks like her, but I, I will, I'll have to find out. Um, so she's a big promoter of that, and she really takes women under her wing. In 1936, uh, the, the specific guild of women at, up at Fort Belknap made 11 pairs of moccasins and 11 pairs of dolls, there was a male and a female doll, and a series of parfleshes and beaded bags um, and other items that they, were, they sent um, to the San Francisco State Fair to represent the Gromont and Assiniboine tribes. Um, from Fort Belknap, and they were paid. They were paid a commission for that. So they're kind of trying to get their culture out there for people to know about. And during the 30s, southwestern tribes are are, are very much sort of the vogue collectors' items. So they're 
a whole different style of art, a whole different style of crafts. And Plains Tribe are just kind of making a foray into that art market, so to speak. Um, these are a couple of things that I want to show you that are some examples. Um, and these are particular things that were actually donated to the Montana Historical Society. These are her personal moccasins. But they give us an example of some of the specific styles that were created by the Rouen, the reading styles. Um, you see the French influence on up here that's down on the lower right. Um, the types of things that were being made and that they were able to um, continue to make. There's another aspect to it, too. I mean, it's, it's economically beneficial for them to make it and sell them uh, to tourists or governors or all the other people that collected them, the historical society. Um, the other aspect is that you're keeping alive these traditions that go with creating these different types of arts, these different types of, of things. There's a lot of science involved, there's a lot of math involved, there's a lot of artistry involved, but there's also, there are also traditions um, and that continuity between generations that had been nearly severed by the, the boarding schools. This is sort of um, circumventing that and keeping, keeping cultural things alive between one generation and the next. Here's a car flesh. Uh, I was hoping Sean Chandler was catching on Thursday when I saw him, but I didn't. Um, this is a very typical Grolon style car flesh. Car fleshes were used kind of like suitcases or briefcases. You could store a lot of things in there. The hide's not tanned. It's the word car flesh. Um, they work as very durable cases. This is also from Julia Schultz's personal collection. Uh, this is a little knife sheath that was her knife and four little uh, wooden sticks for playing the, the bone game or the stick game. Now my favorite. These are two little dolls that Julia Schultz made uh, for the art museum at Dartmouth College. Um, and she made these, I think it was in the 1950s. But you can see she tried to represent white lady people very accurately in terms of what they wore, uh, what they carried with them, the colors that were used, the styles. Julia Schultz also formed the first federated Indian women's club in the United States. And it was up at Fort Belknap. Um, the top picture is at Fort Belknap. The lower picture is at Fort Peck. Soon after the Fort Belknap Club was established, there was one established on the Crow Reservation that included both Crows and Cheyennes. And uh, they worked with um, Henrietta Crockett, who was our public health nurse at the time. Henrietta Crockett was on a 50-year crusade against tuberculosis. And Julia Schultz said, yes, I will take up this banner on the reservation. So she would um, hold well-being clinics and invite public health nurses in to teach you how to raise your baby, be healthy, to take care of mom's health, and then they would go into the schools and into the families and talk to them about tuberculosis and the spread of that disease. She also brought in the home extension ag folks from the ag school that was um, to teach them about canning and gardening, uh, kind of reviving some of the stuff that she must have learned at some point for very fields, but bringing in these home economic experts to improve their, their well-being. During the four, early 40s, there was a big survey done of Indian life uh, in the West. This is a, a bed, uh, down in Northern Cheyenne. There was no hospital at Northern Cheyenne. And that was another big platform that Julia Schultz took on. She petitioned the Billings Women's Club to please support and put all their effort into building a hospital at Fort Belknap and at 
the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. So I have like two minutes. Is that good? I think the group will allow you to. I'll be quick. Okay. So she also wrote down, as a, as a member of the Federated Women's Club, and she was the head of the Indian Welfare Committee for the state, she wrote down a really long history of the Roman people, talking about their oral traditions, their treaty history, their family histories, and a lot about their secret feather pipe. Um, and she did that because she saw that it wasn't just the Roman people having to work really, really hard to try to do well in this world, that a lot of that hardship they suffered came from the fact that um, things had been done to them. They had been put into a situation that they had, had very little or no control over, and that the United States had an obligation to recognize, one, that their culture and their history were valid important things, but also to step it up in terms of being compassionate and in terms of supporting the tribe. She was very proud of her history. You'll notice this is a picture from the 1880s. Against that dark teepee on the, on the left-hand side, there's an American flag flying there. So um, I just want to share really quickly a little snippet of one of her, um, one of her uh, points that she makes in her paper that ends up winning a, like a Federated Women's Club National Award, and it's given at a time when they are trying to, they're involved in a land claim against the United States, which, by the way, they did win in 1936. The United States admitted that it took a lot of land legally from the Roma and Blackfeet tribes. Um, but she aims her talk at the club women. She says, you are the agents of change in your communities. You have to go out into the white community and teach them that we're good people and that we deserve to survive and do well. She says, when your fur traders and explorers came among us, we loved them and gave them food and shelter. My mother's brothers, plenty bears, and bullhead always afforded them welcome. These two signed the Treaty of 1885. We have just now claimed the United States Court of Claims, which we hope and pray to win. Our people, especially our old people, are in need. We do all we can, but it is not much. There are only a few hundred of us left. I ask you, friends and fellow clubmen, use your influence in seeing that our claim is accorded justice. Um, in the 1960s, she donated two of her beautiful dresses to the Montana Historical Society, this buckskin dress and the yellow skin um, dress, along with a lot of papers and the other objects I showed you. She also donated this painting. Um, TP liner, which that's a portion of it, it really does go all the way around, which depicts a, an era of Roman history, um, some of which has been interpreted, some of which hasn't. But she did this prior to our 1972 Constitution, which set in motion Indian education for all. She did it because she wanted white Montanans to understand Native people. So she's really a bridge builder in that regard. And here she is um, at her 100th, 100th birthday. In addition to all this other stuff she did, by the way, she also was a tribal councilwoman in the 1930s, which was extremely rare. There are still a lot of women on tribal councils, but in the 30s, almost none. Um, and she was a newspaper reporter for 20 years on top of it all. So thank you very much.